Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, there's 89 chapters. 89. And in those chapters, we read uh, about Jesus' teaching and we, his birth, his uh, ministry, his travels and travel companions. We read about um, his uh, f- conscious fulfillment of the First Testament prophecies. We read about his massive, devastating claims. Like things like, I am the living water, and if you drink of me, you'll never be thirsty again. I'm the living bread. If you eat of me, you'll never be hungry again. These massive claims about the resurrection and the life, if you believe in me, even though you die, you live. Whoa. We read about these moments when a certain holy reality that's always smoldering beyond the thin veil between here and heaven When, for instance, Jesus was baptized and the Father spoke in an audible voice, this is my Son whom I love. I am pleased with him. Listen to him. Or that moment, we we mentioned it two weeks ago in in the Palm Sunday message in John 18 when Jesus, knowing what's coming, a crowd led by Judas Iscariot comes to arrest him and Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth. And do you remember what Jesus did? He uses the divine name. He says, I am. And they fall down. They could not stand with Jesus identifying himself. And then we, we see the writers writing about the shameful cruelty of the trial, the shameful naked death on the cross, the astonishing resurrection, believe it if you will. 89 chapters, but only one place where Jesus describes his own heart. It's here in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In heart. What's the heart? The human heart is the motivational headquarters for the person. It's mind, body, will, emotions, all the package it's the it's the core the center for everything we do we say we think we feel all of that is the human heart which is why again and again in scripture you read verses like proverbs 4 where the wisdom is that we take care of our heart above all else guard your heart for everything you do flows from it the heart this is where jesus describes his heart so Jesus telling us what his heart is like, he uses two words, gentle and lowly. 
The book we'll talk about in a minute, Gentle and Lowly, it says that if Jesus were to have a website, the title of the page, whatever the first page of the website's called, Josh, do you know, what's it called? Is there a name for it? Okay, Gentle and Lowly. If you were to have a conversation with a neighbor and they were to ask you, what's this Jesus that you follow? What's he like? You would most honor Jesus if you were to say, he's gentle and lowly. That's his heart. We're beginning a series called Gentle and Lowly. It's actually from a book. I want to hold this book up. You'll be hearing about it over the next weeks. And um, the story behind the book is it, it, it came out, um, I think, around 2020, 2021. And um, Paul Joslin, who's our teaching pastor, he's on sabbatical for a few, few weeks. And we already miss him, by the way. And um, he gave this to a number of us. And it so captured our heart that our staff read it and then our elders read it. And our, as our elders read it, we prayed the chapters we read over you. You have already been deeply fingerprinted by this book. And this is a book that helps us get in yoke, in step with the very heart of Jesus. Our encouragement to you would be to get into a small group be able to discuss the sermons and the chapters that we, we use in this. And it's not too late to get in a small group. You can go out into our hub out there to the information desk and just find, leave your name and Rachel Pyburn will contact you. We can get you into groups for the next seven weeks through the end of May to experience this book. You, you can, if you can't do that, your schedule won't permit. Um, you can buy the book out in our bookstore for $8, which is a really good price. You can just read along with us each week. Lastly, as you see there, there's some 14 free, 14-day uh, devotionals that you can download and just go through those over the next couple of weeks. They're really good. We've listened to them, and some of them you'll want to listen to two or three times as we go through. So we just want you to be resourced up as we go through the next seven weeks of engaging Jesus' heart, gentle and lowly. Well, what I want to do today is kind of set the table a little bit for the next six weeks after this, and uh, we're just going to get some basic definitions out of the way. We're going to first talk about our heart and what Jesus means in those words. In the New International Version, they're translated weary and burdened, and I first want to talk about our hearts and why we need a gentle and lowly Savior. So we'll talk about our hearts, weary and burdened, and then second, I want to define those words that Jesus used to describe his heart. What is gentle and lowly? And then today, we really with the rest of the six weeks, each week we'll be understanding more and more what gentle and lowly looks like. But today I actually just want to talk about the on-ramp that Jesus gave us in the text about being childlike in order to engage this heart. I want to talk about how we engage the gentle and lowly heart of Jesus. So who we are, who he is, and how we bring those together. You ready to roll? Here we go. Weary and burdened. Hmm. Anyone feeling weary and burdened today? Weary is this idea that um, there's strain and stress which has made us either physically or more often emotionally 
exhausted, tired, just burdened is the next word. And that's when usually what's causing the tiredness and the exhaustion is circumstances that are weighing down our world and our life. Weary and burdened, tired and exhausted from strain and stress physically and emotionally because life circumstances are weighing down on us. Or in college world, do you know what weary and burden's called? Pen-faced and duck syndrome. Let me explain. Came across this in the University of Pennsylvania student newspaper last week. Not that I read that every week, but anyhow. At the University of Pennsylvania, they call it pen-face. It refers to students who act happy and self-assured even when sad or stressed. At Stanford, they call it duck syndrome referring to students who live like ducks, appearing to glide calmly on the water while frantically paddling beneath the surface. As one Penn student said, nobody wants to be the one who is struggling while everyone else is doing great. Despite whatever's going on, if you're stressed, a bit depressed, if you're overwhelmed, you want to put up this positive front. When students remarked to Gregory Ells, director of counseling at Cornell University, that everyone else on campus looks happy, he tells them, I walk around and think, that one's gone to the hospital, that person has an eating disorder, that student just went on antidepressants. As a therapist, I know that nobody, nobody is as happy or as, <laughs> as grown up as they seem on the outside. Duck syndrome. Pen face, weary and burdened. What I'd like to do now, if you'll indulge me for maybe five minutes, is take a brief world tour of what weary and burdened looks like in the world. Would you come with me for a few minutes? A world tour. Let's go back 3,000 years to the land of Israel. In, three, in 1000 BC, Israel was the Machu Picchu. It was the top. It was the most powerful nation in the world, run by the most powerful man in the world named Solomon. He had everything, I mean everything. And this is what he wrote in Ecclesiastes. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days of their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. I throw that in and begin there just because it says two things. One, no matter how high you get, you're still hungry. And no matter how long we've been in the world, human history, 3,000 years ago, this has been a constant. Well, let's jump ahead to 35 BC, a famous Roman poet named Horace. He once said, no one alive is ever content. No one alive is ever content. While I was reading this, I thought of an article I clipped out a couple years ago about a man in Great Britain named Gareth Wilde, 39 years old. By the way, the British Empire is the last living remnants of the Roman Empire. <laughs> there we go. Okay. <laughs> Gareth Wilde, his mission in life became to park in each of the 211 parking spaces of his grocery store. Every time he went to the store, he would park in a different spot, kept a spreadsheet, got permissions even to park in the handicap. I'm not sure how that worked, but it took him six years. And at the end of the, uh, what shall we call it, adventure, he was interviewed by The Guardian, a newspaper in London, and he said, 
I thought that having accomplished this great task, <laughs> I would feel more of uh, an accomplishment, but instead what I feel is utter, <laughs> utter emptiness. No one alive is ever content, especially parking at King Supers. Here we go. Let's keep going. We're going to be here all day, but I want to keep it short. We're going to go to Henrik Ibsen, the great Norwegian playwright. In his plays, he has this recurring theme. If you, I put it in italics. If you take away the life lie from an average man, you take away his happiness as well. Life lie. What's the life lie? Ibsen fleshes it out in his plays. The life lie is that we get through the banality of our lives, the day-to-day drudgery, by always having the NBT out there. Next big thing. And the way that we get through the small days is by the big day. That's always in front of us. The problem is, and this is why he calls it the life lie, is when you get to the NBT, what happens? A, it's really leaving you with this idea, was that it? I mean, wow, okay, I thought that might be better. Or you get there, yeah, good, okay, what's next? What's the next NBT? We live for the NBT. Let's go to the 20th century. We have Wallace Stevens, but in contentment, I still feel the need of some imperishable blitz. So even when we're in contentment, we still have this hunger for imperishable bliss. Wallace Stevens, I began reading him earlier in the year, about the same time I was reading through my Christmas book from my Jan, uh, Bono's memoir, Surrender. And uh, I came across Bono's chapter, still uh, haven't found what I'm looking for. And he has this story of the edge and Bono. Any U2 fans, I, don't, I just want to talk over everyone's head. Any U2 fans in that? Okay. U2 is like this small garage band. And, Bono, the lead singer, Edge is their lead guitar. And um, they, in 1987, had the opportunity to visit Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash. And they go to his house. June Carter Cash is an interior designer. They had it set up for a photo shoot, 40 place settings set around this massive table in their home. And there's four of them, Johnny and Johnny Cash, his wife June, and the Edge and Bono. Bono writes, Johnny Cash gave the most poetic grace I have ever heard. And for Bono to say that, that's big. And then Johnny Cash says, amen. And then out of kind of the earshot of June, he says to the edge and Bono, I still miss the drugs though. Johnny Cash, of course, was clean and sober the last decades of his life. He was a strong believer. He had everything you could want in life, but still was hungry for that eternal bliss. We get everything in life, and we still miss the drugs, though. Let's go to the 21st century. One of my favorite movies, Garden State, written by the actor and writer, Zach Braff. I'll set the scene. They're in a pool, they're uh, uh, coming of age adults, and uh, Zach Braff's character, I think it's Andrew Largeman, is talking to his friend, Natalie Portman, his character. They're at, the, at a pool, and they're in the shallow end of the pool because Zach Braff's character never learned how to swim, and he's complaining that his parents never taught him how to swim. 
Well, Natalie Portman had a really rough upbringing, and she's complaining that her parents exposed her to way too many things. And so this young person makes this amazing statement. You'll see one day when you move out, it just sort of happens one day and it's gone. You feel like you can never get it back. It's like you feel homesick for a place that doesn't even exist. Maybe it's like this rite of passage, you know. You won't ever have this feeling again until you create a new idea of home for yourself, you know, for your kids, for the family you start. It's like a cycle or something. I don't know, but I miss the idea of it, you know. Maybe that's all family really is, a group of people who miss the same imaginary place. The human heart is a churning heart, weary and burdened. I want to just talk for a minute about the source and get underneath that. What's causing that churning? What's the weary and burden? Where's that sourced from? I think we get a hint of it when Jesus says to the weary and burdened heart, take my what? Yoke upon you. Now on the surface, that's pretty extreme. I mean, we moderns hear that in yoke. I mean, that's a work instrument. That's like getting alongside a, an ox and plowing a field. And Jesus is saying, like, you have to work hard with me on this. It's one thing that helps is that a yoke in the ancient world was a description of adult education. And in that world, you didn't just take the happiness class at Yale, four million people have, but you didn't just take the happiness class at Yale and say, okay, I'm happy now. Um, you were yoked to your rabbi. You lived in their basement. You, you followed the rabbi around through life. You watched how he or she engaged people. You, you were not just getting content, you were getting life. At Waterstone, one of our staff values is to be a dusty follower. And it's that same idea where you follow so close to the rabbi that his dust is getting on you. That's the idea here. Jesus says, I don't want to just give a class to you. I don't want to just give knowledge to you. I want you to live with me, follow me around, and see how to live. And seeing that, you will find rest. And we moderns think, well, I don't like the sound of that at all. Uh-uh. I mean... You're going to speak, you, like, you're going to dominate my life. You're going to tell me how I should be using my time and my money and my body. You're going to yoke me to that? And Jesus says, if you want rest. And here's my point. Here's the implicit part of this. Do you see, we put the emphasis on the word yoke, and we say, oh, I don't know, yoke. Jesus would want us to put the emphasis on the my my yoke. And what's implicit in the my yoke is that Jesus has his yoke and you have your yoke. We are all yoked to something. Our heart is craving meaning, craving significance, reason. Every heart gets out of bed in the morning for a reason. Every heart is yoked to something. There's what Jesus is trying to get at. Leave your yoke and take his. Well, what do our hearts get yoked to? Well, we could make a list. Should we check some off the list? How about some of us have been yoked and still are to our parents? 
And every day of our lives, we still hear little voices, mom voices and dad voices in our head. And we're living up to those expectations and standards. And we're yoked. Some of us are yoked to an upbringing, uh, even uh, a religious upbringing that we can't quite shake. And we know we have to shake some of it off, but we're still yoked. Some of us are yoked. I'm going to start meddling now. Some of us are yoked to a relationship, a friendship, or a marriage. And we're asking that marriage to be our heart's provision. That everything my heart needs, you should give to me. That's what marriage is, right? If it is, you're in trouble already. And talk to me, I have the names of therapists. If you are expecting to be yoked to your spouse in a way that they are your sole source of comfort and joy, you are already killing your marriage. And you're in trouble. Okay, you say, Larry, I get it. Okay, don't be codependent. Um, Some of us are yoked to our work. Here's the yoke. Here it is. You ready? Some of us think the quality of our work is the measure of our worth. And if that's how you are approaching your work, I've got two words for you. Burn out. And it will take you down. You will not be able to sleep at night because you're always wondering how you are, what you're doing, the quality of your you're, you're going to crash as an employee. You're going to crash as a person and probably lose your relationships in the mix. Okay, Larry, don't be a workaholic. Okay. Okay, here we go. Some of us are yoked, the sole source of comfort and joy for our heart, to our children. I have been in this room when people have said to me, looked me in the eye, the only reason I have to live is for my kids. And I'm telling you, alarms go off. If your children are the sole source of your comfort and joy, what your heart needs and wants, you are either going to dominate them so hard with your needs that you're going to ruin their childhood and they won't want anything to do with you. Or, if they don't push you away, you're going to be perpetually frustrated because you're not getting what you want from them. Everyone take a deep breath. It's just really heavy in here right now. But I've I've got one more. Do you know another yoke that I see among us? We don't talk about this enough. We really don't. Let this be the commencement. Some of us are yoked to the Denver lifestyle. We are sacrificing huge amounts of money, 
huge amounts of time, huge amounts of effort and mental and soul space for this what? This lifestyle of Subarus. <laughs> Just kidding on that. I drive a Subaru. <laughs> no, like, like, outdoor bodies and, and ski passes, the, the cool ski passes, and the mountain homes, and, and, and the, the certain number of weekends to get away, and, and uh, uh, the kids have to be, you know, look a certain way and be in certain things, and they have to be a Denver kid. And we're a Denver family, and we will sacrifice anything to be a Denver family. I know I'm stepping on toes, but one of the things this gentle and lowly series is going to do for us is say gentle and lowly here with Jesus and our weary and burdened heart. And why are our hearts so weary and burdened? Could it be that there are places in our life where we are chasing the things that take us away from the gentle and the lowly. Okay, let's move on. You ready to move on? I have really meddled this morning. Gentle means power that's under control. It's holding power in the service of others. Desire to see others' interests advance ahead of one's own. It's interesting that in extra biblical liturgy, this word is used to describe the taming of animals. So think about taming an animal, right? The animal is still as strong as it's ever been. It doesn't lose strength when it's tamed. It just submits its strength to its master. And so this idea of gentle is not being weak, it's holding power to serve others. So what's it look like on the outside? On the outside, it looks like poise. I love that word, poise. It looks like kindness, self-control. It looks like a, a, um, a quiet strength that, that people have. Life is, you know, up and down, and you're just, they just kind of level through. So... There's a, a gentleness, and it's the opposite. The antonyms would be harshness and competitiveness and extreme, like, anxiety would be the opposite words. And so gentleness on the outside looks that way, poise, but on the inside, gentleness flows from this idea that the relationship with God that I have, I'm always calling myself, I'm preaching to myself all the time, God has my life, my needs, my future. God has my life, my needs, my future. God has my life, my needs, my future. And from that place, no matter what people we're interacting with and what situation, we don't have to be competitive or harsh because we're wired in 
to a relationship with God. So there's a gentleness and the, the humble peace, gentle and lowly. Lowly is this idea, not so much of a virtue, but of a, a condition or a, a space in life or a, 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 um, a downward circumstance. Humble estate is the, what described Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was of humble estate. Or to associate with the lowly was a, was a phrase from um, Romans 12 where Paul says that the church should be known for associating with the lowly. And in the context there, the idea of lowly is someone where you as a host, having people into your house, they would walk in and you would have a moment of cringe because of the way they look or the way they smell. And yet the church is the place where, come, come unto me, all you are weary and burdened, because I'm gentle and I'm there with you, I'm lowly. Like, right, Jesus, lowly? One of my favorite poets was Rich Mullins, the great songwriter, and he has this great song where he talks about the, the world sat on the shoulders of a homeless man. Jesus was lowly. He was a homeless person. And so this idea of gentle, controlled strength, lowly being, you know, at the very bottom rung and comfortable with that and always moving space in your life to get closer to that than the top, going down. And so that's the heart that's gentle and lowly. Just two things before we talk about how to get there. One, isn't this rather stunning? I don't want to pass over this too quickly that the title of Jesus' website would be Gentle and Lowly. I mean, who are we talking about here? We're talking about the Son of God. We're talking about the one who in Revelation rides in on the white horse, robe dipped in blood, sword from his mouth. You know, he's, we're talking about the most powerful individual, the, the God-man, the one who has every right to a thousand titles. And it's stunning Stunning that he would want to be associated and connected to us as the one whose heart is gentle and lowly. Just a quick plug here, real practical application. We talk about a waterstone, we've talked about this morning, our rhythm of restoration to be demonstrating God's love, justice, and mercy. I just want to remind us how stunning that is to a watching world when we demonstrate God's love and his mercy to people. In the same way that the gentle and lowly heart did, our hearts gentle and lowly, moving towards them, the gentle and the lowly, moving towards the weary and the burdened. How stunning that is to a watching world. Folks, we're a church that's about neighboring, and we're a church that's about practicing the rhythm of restoration so that people can see the gentle and lowly heart of Jesus. The second thing I want to say about it is Jesus is inviting us to that heart. Come unto me, he says, the gentle and lowly heart. In other words, it's self-authenticating. The best way, and I'm saying this to you in the room who may be visiting with us or online who are trying to figure out what Christianity is about, let me say this to you. If you really want to know Jesus as gentle and lowly, come to him. It's self-authenticating. It's one of those things that you don't really quite learn until you step into it. And then he will show himself to you as gentle and lowly. In the hardest, darkest days of your life, you will find the gentle and lowly heart with you. 
How do we engage that? That's the first part. And our last movement today, Matthew 11, verses 25 and 26. So we have our hearts weary and burdened. We have his heart gentle and lowly. They come together this way. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Revealed them to little children. This is one of the metaphors that Jesus most often used to describe how to begin a relationship with God. Look at Matthew 18, just another quick uh, version of it. He called a little child to him, placed the child among them, and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the way to begin a relationship with Jesus is to become like a child, to be born again. What does that mean? It means at least two things. First, by, by the way, you know, Jan and I haven't had children in our home for years now, and so that's one of the reasons you might catch us staring at you who do have little children at home, and we don't have grandkids yet, if you have single daughters that need husbands, talk to me after the service <laughs> online. It's going to take a special woman for both of them. <laughs> but um, so what we do now is watch yours. And it is so much fun to watch your, your kids. You, I'm saying you and your kids together. The first thing that you notice about little kids is they are helpless. Up. I'm tired, I can't walk across the sidewalk. I just love to see that and I love to see how you respond to that. But what a children is always telling you is that they're helpless. Now I know that some of that, you know, you need to parent through all that, but by and large, those of you with like kids two and under, I mean, where would, you, where would your kid be if you left them alone for an hour? Don't do it. Like, a day. My goodness, children are helpless, and they will not make it unless they have help. And Jesus is saying, become like a child because you will not make it unless you have help. You can't make it, not for an hour, not for a day. You need to say, up. I think sometimes we think, oh, you know, I have good seasons in my life. I'm not sure I need God, but when I have bad seasons, I need them. And you know, hopefully more good than bad. But I, Jesus says, you can't make it a day without me. Not really. Not if you're really paying attention to what's going on in here. Up. Second thing about a child is not only are they helpless and know they need help, but they also know that they are always loved always loved. In good homes, kids know this. And that's why they throw temper tantrums. <laughs> and those are really fun to watch. <laughs> I mean, your little kids, they can ruin an hour with five minutes of a tantrum that like really mess your life up for a few minutes. What do you do? I mean, so one time a couple years ago, this one has always registered with me. Uh, I was in the Honda waiting room getting in car serviced, and there was a little girl with her older sister who looked to be about eight. The girl was maybe three, and then a dad, and they were getting their car serviced, and the little girl tells daddy, I need to go potty. 
And uh, she said, I want to go by myself. <laughs> and daddy says first, no, I'll, I'll take you. And he was going to take her into the men's room and go potty. And she said, no, I want to go by myself. And it began to escalate. And um, the dad says, okay, well, your sister will take you. No. And then all this negotiation, all of us who are reading, like the newspaper went up a little bit. And the volume in the, the whole room's lifting. And we're all kind of smiling a little bit. And uh, finally negotiated a great settlement. And uh, dad and older sister stood outside the women's room while she went in. And some of us could look down the hall where this was happening. And I'll never forget this little three-year-old girl came out and said, I did it, Daddy. I did it. You know? Then she runs out to the waiting room area and all of us, I did it. I did it. That little girl threw one of the worst temper tantrums of her third year. And yet at the end of it, knew that her dad would always, always love her. Always. I've watched so many of us go through life, and I think we get the first part okay. I'm helpless. I need Jesus. Yes, up. I think a lot of us struggle with that second piece. Like the Father is always waiting and always loves us, and I just need to go back to him. Daddy, did you see? What would make us keep going back and to know that the Father loves us? It's what we say around Waterstone all the time. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. We never get over the gospel. And the gospel is this, that Jesus has lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and he gives that to us. And that cross is proof of love. The cross is proof. So today, an invitation. We're actually uh, going to sing a song called I Need You, I Need Thee. It's an, from an old hymn. And uh, often at Waterstone, we offer prayer time after the service, after everyone's leaving. We just want to extend that a bit today, and if you're here today and you want to say in front of God, in front of everybody, that you need him and you're going to receive his love today, you're going to receive the cross into your life and live in that love, maybe you want to recommit to that today, maybe you want a, a fresh start of some kind, whatever it is, during this singing, come down to the front, kneel. Talk to God. This is an altar. Give him anything you want. Weary and burdened, is there anything you need to give up? Anything you need to give to him. Come and do that. If you want prayer, just maybe motion a couple of us. I'm going to ask some of the elders in the room if you'd be down front with me and staff. Here's the last page of Gentle and Lowly. Go to him. All that means is open yourself up to him. Let him love you. The Christian life boils down to two steps. Number one, go to Jesus. Number two, see number one.
whatever is crumbling all around you in your life, wherever you feel stuck, this remains undeflectable, his heart for you. So go to him. He loves you. That place in your life where you feel most defeated, he is there. He lives there, right there, and his heart is for you. Not on the other side of it, but in that darkness, you will find him gentle and lowly. Your anguish is his home. Go to him. If you knew his heart, you would go.